Thanks again so much for being with us this morning. Our lead pastor, Matt Rawlings, is with his family on vacation in Virginia, visiting family up there for the holiday and just getting some time away for some refreshment there. Um, Many of you may remember Will Broadus from when he was with us uh, this January. Will is planting a church, Reconcile Community Church in West Greenville. Um, And he is one of the churches that is going to be joining us at Renew. Um, The folks there, they have just started the plant, really January relocated, and have begun having meetings with their team. Um, It's not full-on public meetings yet, but they're gathering folks and beginning. So he's going to give a little update what's going on there. And I want to encourage you uh, to get the opportunity to connect with him, not only today, um, but him and his team as they're with us at Renew. This just provides a wonderful opportunity as we're together for a whole weekend um, to look for for folks that we don't know um, as we gather in the cafeterias at different times and have meals and downtimes just to be on the lookout um, they have, as a plant, a smaller group that will be with us. So, yeah, they can get lots of time together with each other. Uh, but um, not to say that that would bore them. But we can add a little, uh, a little more um, variety for them to make sure we're reaching out and spending some time. And we can be blessed as we find out what God is doing as um, they advance the gospel and proclaim Christ's name in West Greenville. Um, We're thrilled to have you with us today, Will. Thanks for for coming. Um, I know we were blessed by your ministry, your preaching in January. Looking forward to receiving from you today. Would you come give us an update and then share with us God's word? Good morning. I hope you all are are doing well. Um, So the question, I guess, is, is to give an update. And I'm going to answer that question, but I'm going to answer some other questions that weren't asked as well. Um, I, I am burdened. I am very burdened. Because statistics that I researched about the area we live in, uh, concerning uh, the poverty, concerning the, the relational brokenness, um, they are not statistics to me anymore. They are names and they are faces. They are neighborhoods and they are communities. And my heart is very burdened. Because um, every day when I drive around my neighborhood, I see a lot of brokenness. I, 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 I feel like I carry um, that area in my heart. Um, actually, it's something weird that's developed as of late. I've, uh, I've had this tension that is just in my back all the time because I am witnessing uh, a level of brokenness that I have not seen firsthand before. With all that being said, the ground is hard. It's not easy. When people are dealing with a variety of circumstances in their lives, particularly if it's hard or rough, um, they have survival mechanisms that make themselves hard. So it takes a long time to build relationships. 
It takes a long time to gain trust. Uh, so we've been there since January. Um, we had, in the spring, we had three missional communities. Um, for the summer, you know, the schedule is kind of strange. We, we jumped into one, uh, but we try to make sure that we are meeting our neighbors and our, the people who live near us. We do cookouts. Um, I'm the chaplain at the local high school. Uh, we're doing some ministry at the elementary school. And really, um, the big push is just evangelism. So when you think of us, please pray for that. Pray that we could continue to build relationships that would lead to sharing the gospel. Pray for, for me and for our, our leadership that we could continue to equip one another and our team in that work of evangelism. Our goal uh, is to build the church by conversion. Our goal is that because we see the effects of sin uh, very clearly. Um, I don't only really want to paint that bad picture. I, one of the one of the, the joys of being there is is seeing uh, Christians who have been faithful in that context in that context uh, without any limelight being shined on them. You know, uh, when people talk about planting churches in the city, they're talking about a particular area of the city, and a lot of times there's a more attractive area of the city and up and coming area of the city, but there are other places in the city that need churches. There are other places in the city that need witnesses. And one of the most, the, one of the most beautiful things is I've been able to partner with churches and, and meet other Christians who have been laboring there faithfully. Um, but even there is a bit of discouragement there. I was talking to, to one of those uh, Christians yesterday, and she was just really described. She's lived there her whole life. She was describing her life to me. Um, just the brokenness in her family that she experienced, um, just a variety of things like, um, you know, drug dealers who are neighbors, prostitutes rocking down the street, just all, all these things like that, um, where her and her family live. And she said to me, you know, the fact that God sent you and the church plant is a reminder to us that God has not forgotten this area. And with all those challenges uh, in front of us, um, and with the burden that I feel, I'm still confident. I'm confident not because of my ability or my strategy. I'm confident because of the gospel. The same God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That power that was shown in his resurrection. That power is still available in that work in believers today. And that power is still available in that work in those who don't know him. For them to be raised to life in him. So I'm confident because I serve that God whose resurrection power works in us and works in our ministries. So as you think, please pray. Pray for us. Pray. We, need, we need more team members. Uh, pray for us. Uh, we're in a, a, a situ, uh, financial su- sustainability will take a little bit longer for us because of our location. So pray for us for our finances and pray for our evangelism. I am... Uh, <laughs> hungry and I'm, I'm thirsty. I want to see people uh, know Jesus, to, to see the quality of life that comes with him, the joy and the peace that cannot be stolen, that abides forever. So pray for us. Pray for us in that. Um, I kind of want to talk to you today. I, I guess I have a, a question. The question is this, what makes a good work 
or a good deed good? What makes a good work or a good deed good? Now, I'm sure like, like me, you probably have like a category. Uh, there's these, these lists of good things you do and these lists of bad things you do. So it's, you're like, well, obviously good things are intrinsically good. If I go and help somebody, that is a good thing. If I go and pray and read the Bible, that is a good thing. If I go and share the gospel, that is a good thing. But I think Jesus has a more nuanced understanding of what is a good deed. Because in all of his conversations with the Pharisees, on paper, many of the things that they were doing were good things. They were giving their money to God. They were reading the law. They were trying to be obedient. They were trying to teach others. What this should do, that should make us really cautious. And that should make us examine closely what exactly makes a good deed good. And I think as we study the words of Jesus, and as we think about what he has to say, I would contend to you that what makes a good thing good isn't intrinsically the thing that you did, but it is the motivation that you have when you do it. Jesus was always talking about examining the heart. He would always say that I I can look in the heart and I know exactly the motivation why you are doing this. Now, the Bible has so many commands, commands that are good. But there is a danger for us that we could have our list of commands from God and we could do them even faithfully and still be wrong because our motivation is wrong. You know, one of the commands that that rings on my heart consistently is the command that Jesus gave before he ascended. It's a very simple command. Well, simple in its instruction. Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples of all nations. Now, again, I want to go back to the premise. The premise is this, that a good deed to Jesus... It's not simply doing something good. It matters about the motivation for which you do it. So I want to look today. What is the biblical motivation for discipleship? And I think it would be wise if I would define my term. Um, What discipleship is, I have a very, I guess, holistic view of discipleship. Discipleship is helping unbelievers become believers by showing them Christ and helping other believers grow to more and more maturity. It's evangelism, it's fellowship. If I am seeking and pursuing a person so that they would know Christ more fully, that is what I'm talking about when I say discipleship. So what type of motivation is pleasing to God in our endeavor to make disciples. Because again, it matters. 
It matters. It's not just that we are doing something good. It matters the, the posture of our heart. It matters how, how we, we think about God and how we are assessing ourselves. It matters about our motivation and why we do what we do. So we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 8. I love this book. I love this book because, I love it because Paul actually had to leave Thessalonica before he wanted to. So actually, we get a little bit of a glimpse into what Paul would say to new Christians about everyday life. So, verse 1, verse 1. It says, For you yourselves know, brothers... That our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God, To be entrusted with the gospel. So we speak. Not to please man. But to please God. Who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery as you know. Nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people. Whether from you or from others. Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves. Because you had become very dear to us. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is powerful. The fact that we read your word and thought about your word, even before I begin to preach, it is such a gift that you have given to us. Lord, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. That Christ would be honored, that he would be magnified. Lord, would you give me the words to say? In Jesus' name, amen. So, I, the, the, the motive that matters in discipleship, I'm going to argue from the text, is this. God is what motivates discipleship. And what that looks like, God-motivated discipleship produces a Christ-like life. The motivator of discipleship is God. And a God-motivated discipleship produces a christ like life. So, what is God motivated discipleship? Let's turn to verse 4. Verse 4. He says, We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So, my first question is this What does one have to do to be approved by God? That's just like really intense. That there's this precious message coming straight from the creator of heaven and earth. And he looks at a human and says, you, I approve you. 
Now we can think about who wrote it, right? Paul is the one writing this letter. And when I think about Paul, like Paul is like this great missionary hero. And and he has endured all of these sufferings. And he has preached these elaborate sermons. I mean, read the book of Romans. Like he, he is so smart. And so at first glance, I think, oh my goodness. To be approved to speak the gospel, do I have to be Paul's status? I don't know, man. And then I I think about um, throughout church history, I think about all these these great men and women who have labored so hard for the gospel. One of my favorite uh, is St. Patrick. Uh, It's really funny. I I actually don't know much about St. Patrick's Day, but I can tell you about St. Patrick. He, was, uh, he grew up as a boy in England. He was sold into slavery in Ireland. And Ireland at that time was a pagan nation. Right? There was no Christianity to be talked about in Ireland. But while he was in Ireland, he remembered the sermons that he listened to in his youth. And he began to seek God and, and he began to talk with God even in the midst of his slavery. And by God's grace, he escaped. And when he went back to England, he started to study to be a pastor. And as he, as he continued to study to be a pastor, he became burdened for the people that enslaved him. And as he began to be burdened for what some would call those godless people, the people around him were like, well, hold up, man. You can be a pastor here, right? But he went anyway. He went and, and he started to share the gospel. And it's crazy, by the end of his life, the church had spread all throughout Ireland. When I think about somebody who's going to be entrusted with the gospel, I think about a Paul. I think about a Patrick. I think the Bible has something different to say to us about How does one become entrusted with the gospel? I want to just take a look at at what God did with Paul. I'm going to read a little bit from from Acts 9.15. So, you know, Paul or Saul at the time is, is riding on a horse. Jesus appears to him. He becomes blind. And then Jesus appears to one of his disciples. In Acts 9.10 it says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, here I am. And the Lord said to him, rise up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hand on him so that he might regain his sight. Now, verse 13 is key. He says, but Ananias answered, Lord I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul was appointed as a messenger of the gospel, before he had that track record of being a missionary hero. In fact, Paul was appointed as a messenger of the gospel when his only relationship to Jesus up until that time had been one of a persecutor. 
how? How could, could, could Jesus entrust the gospel to someone who was his enemy? Who actively persecuted his people? How could Jesus entrust the gospel to you and me? Because the Bible's description of our state is that all of us are God's enemies. By our actions, we declare that we're not so sure he's the wisest. So why in the world would God entrust or how could God entrust his gospel to sinful people? And I will say to you, it's because of the gospel itself. The gospel qualifies people to share in the ministry of Jesus. It qualifies people who don't deserve it. It qualifies people who were enemies. Because in the gospel, you see all of our accumulated sin. This, this sheet that goes on and on and on about the condition of our hearts against God, the words that we have said against God and others, and the actions that we have demonstrated that in our wisdom we think we're wiser than him. All of that track sheet is put on Jesus at the cross. And so as Jesus is on the cross, and he's saying, why have you forsaken me? Those words, those words should have been ours. And so he's on the cross. He's taken all of our sin. But here's the beautiful nature of the gospel. We understand, say, we understand forgiveness, but there's this beautiful doctrine. It's called imputation. All that means is this. All of the accumulated righteousness of Christ is put on us. We find this in in 2 Corinthians. It says, he made him to to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, if there's anybody qualified to share a message from heaven, it is Jesus Christ. But in his grace... He shares that qualification with us. Second Corinthians 5, it talks about how, how God has, has gifted us. He has gifted us with this ministry of reconciliation. With this ministry of discipleship. The Bible sees it as a privilege. Here's one of the craziest Craziest terms in the Bible to me. A lot of time, Paul calls himself God's co-worker. Now, the reason that's so crazy to me is that God doesn't need a co-worker. Like, he made everything by himself. In Genesis 1, there weren't any angels helping him. There were no celestial beings. It was just him creating everything out of nothing. He just did it. And then God, in his grace... Enlists us as his co-workers. Many times we see evangelism, we see discipleship, we see it as just a burden. But I'm trying to let you see, beloved, that it is not a burden, but it is a gift. Imagine, imagine if, if, if you were in a nation that had a king and 
and he had a, a message to give to another nation. And, and he said, you, I want you to give that message. Now, your first inclination would not be, oh, man, I can't believe you picked me. He'd be like, this, this is a big deal because of, because of who it's coming from. And my king has a message to give to another nation, and he enlisted me to do it? Why would he do that? And you would joyfully go to the other nation and begin to tell them this message because of who gave you that message. So Paul goes, we have been approved by God. Why? How? Because of the gospel. We have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. So because God has entrusted us with this gospel, we are responsible to God for that entrusting. He goes on to say in verse 4, it says, because we've been entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests the heart. God has given, this, given us this beautiful gift of participating in his ministry in the world, though we do not deserve that gift. And then the question that you and I have to think is, what are we going to do with that gift? You know, if I gave you a precious gift, let's say it's Christmas, I gave you a precious gift. And then I come back the next year and I see in your corner that gift still wrapped with dust on it. I'm going to think, man, you did not value me that much. You must not have, have cared that I gave you this, this great gift. But so often that's how we see ministry. That's how we see evangelism. That's how we see pursuing others. We think it's a burden, but rather we must see it as a gift. And we must realize, though it is a gift, we will be held accountable for what we do with that gift. I'm reminded of the parable where he talks about there's a manager and, and he, he gives his servants, he gives one five talents, he gives one two talents, he gives one one talent. It's like money, gives him some money, right? And then he says, go, go do Work with what I've given you to do. And then uh, the one with five doubles it. The other guy doubles it. But the one with one talent, he, he goes to the master. He goes, man, I was, I was scared. I, I didn't do anything with what you, you gave me. And the master was angry with him. Because he squandered his gift. My plea to you today is, is do not. Do not squander your gift. Paul, understanding that God had gifted him not only with justification and not only with with imputation, but God had gifted him for the ministry of reconciliation. And he says, God is testing my heart to see what I do with that gift. He is looking in the deep recesses of my heart to see what I'm going to do. And because of his gift of grace... I'm going to do this ministry, not because I'm trying to check a box, not because I'm trying to please somebody else, but I want to please God. 
It's so interesting. You know, we seek to please that which we love, right? Somebody you first meet, you know, you're just trying to date somebody, you know, you maybe put on some makeup or, you know, wear your nice shoes. You know, you, you, you're like, oh, I'm trying to woo this person. And so whatever you love, you seek to please. And here's the, the greatest thing about how the Bible describes how we come to love God. It says we love him because he first loves us. And our, what we do with this gift, this gift of ministry that he has given us, it is a determiner. It is a determiner of our love for him. Do you remember what Jesus said to Peter? After he resurrected, he said, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yeah, of course. Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I just said, then feed my sheep. The evidence, this this is an indicator of our love is that we are engaged in evangelism and that we are engaged in discipling one another. So the question I have is, so, so God motivated uh, discipleship. What does that look like? So we understand the motive should be God's grace. The grace that, that he saved me and the grace that he included me in his work. So what, 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 what does that look like in the everyday? Let's look at verse 2. It says, but though we had already suffered... And been shamefully treated at Philippi. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So the story is this. Paul and Silas go to Philippi. They get beaten. They get arrested. They're stuck in jail. The Lord delivers them miraculously. Then they go to the next town. And they get ridiculed and run out of town. And the people that they begin to share the gospel with are getting persecuted and being being, like mobs are hunting them down. And he's saying, he's saying, listen, I want you to understand that my motivation for for evangelizing and for discipleship, it is not for anything because of God. And the evidence is that I have been suffering. I go from one trial to the next. For the sake of the gospel, because God has given me this gift, because he has entrusted me and he is testing my heart. I don't do it for you. I don't do it for anyone else. But because of what God has done. You know, in, in apologetics, um, people are, are you know, trying to come with, with, with proofs for Christianity. And one of the greatest proofs, if you will, of the resurrection is the lives of the apostles themselves. Let me explain. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, why in the world would the apostles endure such suffering? They didn't have anything to gain. They, you know, they weren't getting money. They, they, they were getting persecuted by the government. Their own families were like, get away from me. You believe this, this wrong heresy. They, there was nothing to be gained. But of those 11 apostles, every single one of them were martyred. The last one was exiled. They are demonstrating that the reason they are pursuing ministry is not 
for any gain. It, it, and one of the marks of it is suffering. And it is an evidence of the reason that they're doing it. It's because of God. So in our context, it, I don't think many of you are, are getting beaten for sharing your faith. We're not called police, I guess. Uh, I don't think we have that same level of persecution. But I do know that fear can still reign in your heart. The fear of being ostracized. Maybe if you're at work, what, what, what will my employer think if I begin to share the gospel? What if my friends begin to distance themselves from me? The evidence that God is the one motivating your discipleship is that you would endure suffering. If we are not willing to endure suffering, whatever that looks like in our pursuit of discipleship for God's glory, if we're not willing to endure suffering, maybe we have a different motivation. So he goes, the, the, some more uh, examples is, is uh, I go to, to, to verse 3, it says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. Verse 5 and 6, it says, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we see glory from other people. They, it, they made it clear because God was the one motivating them. They weren't, they weren't going to go try to manipulate people. They weren't going to go around trying to lie. And they definitely weren't going to try to do it for, for the, you know, that they would be looked at as so, so like holy or, or glorious or that other people would pat them on the back. Because they are motivated by God and because God is the one who tests their hearts, they're saying, I, I don't really care what you think. I just want to know what God thinks. And it goes on to say, say, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Now, in, in the church world, Paul has some clout. He, you know what I'm saying? He has some status. Like when Paul comes in the town and you're a Christian, you have a little bit of reverence and a little bit of awe. And he's saying, I did not take advantage of anything. I didn't take advantage of my status. I, 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 I humbled myself and I became your servant because I am seeking to please God. You know, I think about, again, let's think about our context. Uh, sometimes being a Christian is like, it's considered a good thing. You know, you tell somebody you're a Christian, they're like, oh man, you must be a good person. You know what I'm saying? And then sometimes we could, in our, in our, in our desire to disciple, and our desire to evangelize, there could be this subtle temptation that you begin to care that people think you are the quote-unquote good Christian. There is, there, there, in some contexts where we live, there is an air of, of prestige. Like, oh, you must be a very good moral person. Oh, wow. And Paul's saying, I'm not, I don't, I'm not doing it so that you would think I'm a moral person. I'm not, I'm not doing this so that you would put me up on a pedestal. I'm doing this for God, for his glory. And the last thing from this text, the last thing from this text that is a, a marker of a God-motivated discipleship 
is gentle love. Let's look at verse 7. He says, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Now, obviously, I have never nursed a baby. But my daughter, my youngest, has just been weaned. And I tell you what, babies are cute. But at 2 o'clock in the morning, when they're crying and they're hungry, that's not so cute. So Paul, you know, when we think of, oh, like, oh, he must, the babies are so nice. No, no, what he's communicating is this, that there were times when you really annoyed me. <laughs> yeah, I'm just, like, there were times when, when, like, you were not being super nice to me, and you were acting extremely selfish. But just like the nursing mother is, is patient and gentle and caring, enduring the two and three and four o'clock waking up. Just like that, I was gentle with you. Now, where does, where does Paul get this gentleness? He gets it from God. In the gospel, we see God dealing with us gently. He would have been right to deal with us harshly. But in his character, in his love, he is still dealing with me gently. He is still calling me out on my sin. But with such love and with such care. And though I keep struggling with things over and over again, he is patient with me. And his patience, his gentleness motivates me. And should motivate all of us to be gentle to others. Look at verse 8. He says, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel, but also our own selves because you have become very dear to us. And this type of love is, 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 again, imitating God's love. You know, I want, I want us to think about, like, the, the, the level of, of God's affection for us. You know, in Hebrews, it, it talks about, like, the first verse says that, that many times God spoke to people in different ways. You know, there's an angel or, or a prophet. You know, they spoke in d- different ways. Maybe there's a bush. But, but in the last days, he has spoken to us through his son. So, again, imagine... Imagine if there's two countries and they are at war with one another. And one country wants to make peace. So you send like your ambassador, you send an emissary, you send, you send somebody. But, but God, he sends his own son. Who is the exact radiance of his glory. When you see him, you see the father. He enters enemy territory into the messiness of our lives. Into the sin infestedness of our lives. God himself steps down. That is like that is such a clear picture of his love. The fact that, that God himself would be incarnated and become and, and, and dwell with us. That he would endure ridicule and mocking, ostracism, shame, beating, and even death. God's love for us is not just that he stood afar 
and sent us a kind note. God pursued us to the death. And in the same manner, the the way that we pursue people is, is not from a distance, but that we step into the messiness and the griminess of each other's lives. The picture of this is, 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 is not like a textbook, one and done, evangelism or discipleship. It's that I, I, I am engaging with people, and man, some days it is crazy. I'm like, why did you respond like that? I, I do not know why you responded like that. Why did you do that? Why do you think that? Why did you say that to me? It is a messiness. But just like our Savior pursued us to the point where he stepped into our messiness, God is calling us to step into others' messy. God's calling us to step into each other's messy. When sin and destruction... Just plain weirdness sometimes is at work. Jesus is calling you to engage. He's calling you to engage. So I guess the question is, how how do we grow in God-motivated discipleship? How, 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 do, how do we, you know, do something so that our hearts are, 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 are changed and that we can say with, with Paul, man, I've been entrusted with the gospel. God is testing my heart. This is my motivation. And this might sound like a Sunday school answer. Whatever. You look to Jesus. Not just, not just casually looking to Jesus. Not just, just, you know, oh, yeah, Jesus loves me. No, no, I mean, gaze deeply at Jesus. The way that the Holy Spirit changes us is when we look and we gaze and we meditate and we think about what Jesus has done and who he is. And we look to his example Man, if there is ever an example of, of, of God-motivated discipleship, it is Jesus. Here's the crazy thing. He, he would say things like, I, I don't do anything uh, that I don't see the Father do. I don't say anything that I don't hear the Father say. And, and he did all things for his glory. But in that sense, the fact that he did all things for his glory, it empowered him to love people unconditionally. Because he would, his service of others was not contingent on what they could give back to him. His service and his pursuit of others was all because of his love for the Father. We see Jesus as our substitute. And when my heart does not want to get engaged in messiness, maybe I'm afraid of that awkward conversation. And maybe I let it pass. I don't engage. What, what do you do? What do you do at that point? You see Jesus as your substitute. Him dying for your sin, which is not just negative, but we have sins of omission. When we are not participating in this discipleship, we are in sin. And Jesus died for that. 
So the motivation is definitely not guilt. It is free grace. Even in the midst of us failing, we can see that failure. Our failure to engage. Our failure to get messy. We see that failure as put on Jesus at the cross. And that gives us courage. And we need to see Jesus as the one who empowers. You know, I think about him sending out the apostles. He didn't just like go. He says, now I'm giving you authority. And you have authority to speak my word. You have authority to cast out demons. I'm, I'm, I'm not just sending you out there. I, my presence and my power is coming with you. Jesus is still sending today. Jesus is still empowering today. So if we are going to, to walk in obedience to this call of discipleship and engaging lostness and engaging the messiness in one another, we have to be confident that what Jesus calls us to do, he will empower us to do. And beloved, understand this, that when, when, when Jesus calls you to do something and you walk in that, man, there is a sweet fellowship. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a certain level of friendship that, that comes when you talk to somebody face-to-face. But there's also a certain level of friendship that comes when you work with somebody. When you go to accomplish a task with somebody. And Jesus is calling you to a task that he will accompany you with. And you will see different aspects of his perfections. And your heart will grow in love and affection to continue to walk in obedience. We have to remember consistently, constantly remind one another that we have been given this great privilege as God's messengers. Christ has redeemed us with his blood. And Christ has graciously enlisted us into his service. You know, if you, if you I don't, I don't want to, to assume it. Like, if you don't know Christ, I, could, I, I want you to look to Christ. His forgiveness is available to you. He will enlist you in the greatest adventure that you can imagine. There are some of you that, that you know, you're, you're a believer, but you really have not gotten invested in discipleship. You, you consider that somebody else's job. Or, or maybe your excuse is, that's not my gift. Or maybe it's going to be later. I'm telling you that you are missing out on this deeper and sweet fellowship with Jesus because you will not join him. I plead to you is join him. Join him in his mission. And he will satisfy your heart. There are some who have been engaged in discipleship and you're tired. You're tired. We have to look increasingly to Jesus as our strength. And know that the results of evangelism and the results of discipleship and the results of all that, like he's in charge of that. He's going to take care of that. And you can rest even while you work because he's sovereign and he's in control. Let's pray.
Jesus, I, I thank you so much for your mercy that you have invited us into your mission. You have qualified us with your own blood that came at a great cost. So Jesus, I, I pray that we would not see discipleship as a burden, that we would not see it as uh, something to check off, that we would not see it as a means to gain status, but that we would see it as a gracious privilege and that we would pursue it with the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you encourage each other? Would you encourage us to encourage one another to love and good deeds, to share in the gospel, to open in our mouths and get involved in messiness? Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.